Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly sponsored by Chris Malting Group. Stay tuned to find out more about their heritage malts. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories, and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward Podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward Podcast. Hello, brewers and beer geeks, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Four Podcast. This week, I'll be talking to Toby McKenzie from Macclesfield's Red Willow Brewery. Red Willow, in my opinion, are one of those unsung heroes in modern British beer. They don't make a big fuss or create a whole bunch of hype surrounding their beers, but you'd be hard-pressed to drink a better Cascale than Reckless, their rather delicious American pale, loaded with citra and Amarillo hops, providing massive amounts of tropical fruit with a good, clean, crisp finish. Recently, I was at Indie Beer Feast, a great little beer festival in Sheffield, with my good friend Paddy, and we ended up at their bar, providing plenty of entertainment to the two members of their team who looked on as me and Paddy rather drunkenly, mainly Paddy to be fair, (laughs) debated whether a cold IPA and an India Pale Lager were essentially the same thing. Whilst there, I got to try their Double Heritage Porter, a beast of a beer weighing in a hefty 8.8% ABV. Any beer with the word heritage in it conjures up images of big, sticky grist bills made with the bready, orange, zesty flavours of Chevalier Malt. This beer was simply sublime in every sense of the word oozing with bags of chocolate flavour, coffee bitterness and a toasted aroma. Beers like this aren't just beers that you drink. They're beers you experience, you savour them, you remember them for weeks, months, if not years to come. The fact that Red Willow are able to produce both highly drinkable, no thrills, no spills, beer styles that accompany your trip to the local pub with a group of friends and can also offer a variety of beer styles, including mixed fermentation specials, says a lot about the craftsmanship of Red Willow Brewery and the ethos that Toby and the team have developed. Hopefully it's evident when listening to our discussion today that his passion for brewing and beer styles really shines through. It's definitely evident in the beers they produce. And if you've never tasted them, I highly recommend that you go and find some from your local bottle shop. Anyway, before we crack open this discussion on all things brewing, I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to catch up again with Mike Benson from Chris Malting Group as we talk about heritage malts and how to use them in your brew house when formulating beer recipes. So we caught up in March at Seba Beer X to discuss. I'm here at Seba BX in Liverpool and I'm joined by Mike Benson from Chris Malton Group this week to talk all about heritage malts. Hi Nick. Before we talk about heritage malt, which is a subject that I'm unendingly fascinated by, can you just tell us about what you do for Chris and a little bit about yourself and how you started working for the company? Yeah, I'm Mike Benson. I'm the 
sales manager for Scotland, the West of England and Wales. Uh, I've been with Chris Malt now around about three and a half years and we're obviously responsible for malt sales but also technical support as well. But I started brewing in 2002 at Thomas Ida Burton Wood in Warrington and basically worked my way through every department there, becoming brewing manager 2013. Left in 2017 to join Love Lane Brewing Company in Liverpool. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, put Love Lane in and then the opportunity came to join Chris Moulton. Moulton's always been a fascination to me, so jumped at the chance to, to join them. Nice one. Well, let's talk about Heritage Malt. In a nutshell, can you give us an overview of Chris Moulton Group's Heritage Malt programme and how it came into being? Yeah, so at the minute in time, we, we, if you, you include Marisotta, which is 55 or 57 years old now, we've got Marisotta, which everybody's heard of. We have got Chevalier, which was the original land race variety through England and, and most of Great Britain. And pretty much every single beer brewed for the 1800s would have used Chevalier as a base. We have Plummet Archer, which is really important because it's the first crossbred barley and is the great-grandfather or grandmother of Marisotta. Mm. And then we have Hannah Maltz, which is the original Czech Bavarian variety used to brew the very first Pilsner. And every single spring variety can trace DNA back to that particular variety as well. Right. So it's a really interesting range covering lots of different kinds of, of, of styles of beer and malt. Mm. What would you say the primary differences are between heritage malts like Chevalier versus, I don't know, um, pale malt or best ale or any, any of the standard yeah. base malts? Yeah. So the standard base malts that you can get from any malter these days are all pretty modern varieties. They're all bred for what's best in the field and what's best for the big brewer. So best in the field, what, what yields the best, what's most disease resistant, what's going to give the farmer the most tonnage every year. Mm. As far as then the brewer goes, what's going to give the best extracts? At no point has anybody on that list thought about flavour. So we looked at the popularity of Marisotta from around about 2008 when, when we got the, the craft brewing boom. And you can see with Golden Promise as well that there's something about these older varieties and they really suit modern beer styles. So we went back to the seed banks and we, we started playing around. Uh, and yeah, we, we first brought out Chevalier. I, I don't know how many years ago now, but it's so successful just in creating different flavours that we'd not had from malt before. And that gave us the confidence then to go and try Plummy's Archer and Hannah Malt. Yep. Talk us through the growing and malting process of those heritage varieties. What's different about that? The difference is, um, is how well they perform in the fields. And it's not very well, let's be honest. They're very old varieties. Plummy's Archers and Maris are, I suppose, modern. Plummy's Archers are only 100 and 110 years old, something like that. But they're susceptible to drought, they're susceptible to high wind conditions. They grow quite tall so they can fall over. So they're not exactly akin with modern varieties around that and they do yield a lot less in the field than what modern varieties do. Yep. What considerations do brewers need to make 
when using heritage malts? Because I know from experience, incidentally, I have the beer in question here. It's called That Would Be an Ecumenical Matter. And uh, it says it's an Oud Brun, but originally it was meant to be a heritage ESB using it's got a load of Chevalier malt in it. I just treated it like any other malt, went for it, high mash temp, so on. And then the yeast I used stalled at like 10.30 or something. Yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, what are we going to do with that? So it was either a case of dumping it or adding some Brettanomyces and Pedococcus to it and just leaving it for time to do its thing. Incidentally, time did do its thing and now it's a nude brune. And, you know, it, the, the heritage malt is a, a really lovely maltiness. So it's, it's it, this is a happy accident, but I've heard of other brewers using the heritage malts just like they would a, a Marisotta or a yeah, Best um, Ale malt. And Hannah and Plummet's Archer are, are okay. They, they kind of perform as modern malts would Hannah's a little bit different sometimes it would help having a decoction mash or a step mash there but Chevalier it, it, the, these varieties are really dependent on what the weather throws at them mm. so they react in different ways and Chevalier in the last couple of years it's had some quite challenging growing conditions and that's affected how easy it is to brew with it and it's not very easy to brew with the enzyme levels are generally lower so what we always recommend is is kind of low and slow as far as the mashing regime goes. So an old-fashioned 63-degree stand right. to give the alpha amylase and beta amylase as much activity as possible and then try and give it 90 minutes, a kind of like an old-fashioned stout stand, yeah, yeah, yeah. just giving it as much time and activity as possible to to convert all the sugars yep i love chevalier it's an incredible malt it really is um i remember i don't know if you ever had it uh govinda by yeah, Browse. i yeah. mean that and the other one shane used to brew as well the um gibraltar porter yes absolutely incredible beers yes um and then i had one recently from red willow which was their heritage porter which i would imagine is one of yeah, the heritage, is, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely fantastic flavor qualities so uh, can you just describe for any of our listeners that have never tried any of these beers what kind of flavor they can get out of something like chevalier or plumage archer or yeah so che- chevalier um it, it, it's described as really deeply malty it will always stay a couple of degrees higher through attenuation as well than what a modern malt will so if you you're looking for a, a finish of 10 10 on a modern malt, you're probably only going to get 10, 12 on, on Chevalier anyway. But what it gives is massive, massive body. So you can throw hundreds of BUs at, at Chevalier and mm. it can take it. But you get this really deep multi flavor as well. And what I describe is, is quite a bit as marmalade flavor. And, you know, you, 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 you put it together with Amarillo hops or some nice citrusy orangey hops and they can work really, really well together. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite beers that I did brew with it commercially was a red rye. Oh, yes. Uh, and I, I love a red rye. And the Me problem too. is, you know, everyone loves a red rye, but no one buys them. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. Absolutely. Uh, but it was amazing beer. Um, we did it as a special and it, it did carry on for, for a couple of uh, years. But it's, it's unfortunately stopped made now because nobody buys them. Yeah. What a great beer. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the other favourite beers that have been brewed with these varieties, if you can think offhand? I mean, one of the, the Chevalier, I think, Givinda is the one that you always go to. Shane did such a good job with that one. Um, Plummet Archer, we've just done an amazing beer, a golden ale with Stuart Brewing up in Scotland. And it's on the Charles Farm stands this week. Yep. So hopefully people get a chance to, to try that. But that was just a really nice 
well put together cask beer with just plumage, nothing else. Yeah. Fantastic. And probably my favourite Hannah beer is what Red Willow do with the land beer. Yeah. That is sensational. We've got it on our stand again from tomorrow. No, where I'll be. <laughs> like, yeah. Last year, it, it really was the talk of Beer X where you got, you know, the superstar brewers from all the well-known rock star craft brewers just going, getting the next head brewer coming along, tasting it, being really impressed, going and getting his mate. And it was just brilliant. Amazing. It was fantastic. Yep. Last question before we round up then. What would you say some of the advantages are of using heritage malts in a beer? It, it's, it's added to the brewer's toolkit. Yes, they're expensive and yes, they're hard to work with, but they're offering something different that you can't get anywhere else. Mm. And you don't have to use them 100% as a malt bill to get that out of them. You can quite happily add them as a, a an adjunct addition, 20, 30%. And they're still going to give you these the marmalade flavour from Chevalier and the, the really freshly baked breads and smoothness of Hannah. Mm. Even at smaller quantities, they're still going to add to that grist. Um, and that's 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 flavours and that's attributes you can't really get from anywhere else. Yeah, awesome. Well, it's been great to have you on the podcast this week, Mike. How can people get in touch with Chris Malton Group and find out more and read about Heritage Malt? The best way is to uh, come to the website at chrismalt.com. There's a, a section there with all of our mug shots on it. Nigel Gibbons looks after the south. Stuart Swan looks after the east side. And then uh, I look after the rest of it. All of our details are on there. Feel free to send us an email, contact us. And you can also get in touch with us at hello at chrismalt.com. Thanks, Mike, for your input. A rather perfect segue into this week's main topic of conversation as I talk to Toby McKenzie, founder of Red Willow Brewery, as we chat about brewing, beer styles, cask beer, and using some of those heritage malts to create their delicious beers. Stay tuned and we'll be back in a moment right after this short message. This show is only made possible by our supplier sponsors who support this podcast on a regular basis and offer support and insights to all our listeners within the craft beer industry, whatever your need. This week's episode of the Hot Ball Podcast is proudly sponsored by Chris Moulton Group. The process of discovery is often a happy accident. In the case of Chevalier Barley, a combination of an itchy toe, some good soil and a keen eye turned a single ear of barley into a worldwide phenomenon and established the flavour of English beer for a century. Varieties such as Chevalier, Plumage Archer, Hannah and number 19 Marisotta are easy to grow or malt, but the time and effort that has gone into their revival is a testament to what Chris Malting Group believe as a company, that quality takes time. These heritage brewing malts are for brewers and distillers that want to explore off the beaten track. Head over to chrismalt.com to find out more about their heritage malt programme. That's chrismalt.com. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You can find out more about Hot Forward and the work we do within the industry at our website, hotforward.beer, or follow us on social media at hotforwardbeers. And if you really wanted to go the extra mile, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify with what you think about this podcast. For now, let's crack open this week's discussion. 
Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Toby McKenzie from Macclesfield's Red Willow Brewery. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. How are you, good sir? Yeah, very good, thank you. Good, good. Before we chat about life, beer and everything in between, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the brewing industry and your involvement with Red Willow? Right, so my name's Toby McKenzie. Um, I am now officially very old, so I'm about 50, my 51, 52. You hit a certain age and you can't remember exactly how old you are. You definitely So, um, <laughs> Red Brewery is now been running for, this is going to be quite embarrassing, about 13 years. So, uh, approximately 13 years ago, um, I quit a job in IT. I've been working in London for many, 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 many years. Um, commuting daily from Macclesfield to London. Wow, that's um, a long yeah. way. It is. It, it, it's a very long way. Um, when, we, when I first started doing it, the trains were terrible. Uh, by the time I finished doing it, the trains were getting better, and now they're obviously terrible again. So, um, so I used to uh, get up at a crack of dawn, commute to London, do my job in London, come back home, and this was about a point where I think we just had kids, so our children just had at least one child. Um, I've been doing it for years, and then um, I started home brewing. You know, it was like it, 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 it was a, it was a hobby, um, and like many men of a certain age, hobbies can get, <laughs> shall we say, slightly more engulfing and engaging. And before I knew it, I had built this ridiculous stainless steel Herms computer controlled home brewing setup. It's which which was which was ludicrous. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. I spent more time probably messing around with, and with, with brewing kit and actually made brewing beer. But <laughs> and, you know, I've got an IT background, so it was quite good fun. And I'd just go and hide in the garage for a few hours. And, and, and we were brewing beer and we were brewing beer. And you get to a point where, I don't know what it is about home brewers, they've got this obsession with 100 litres. And I don't know why. Because every home brewer <laughs> uh, either 12 and a half or 25 litres. And it just seems you progressively get bigger and bigger bouquets at home. And, you know, if, if, if you can produce 50 to 100 litres of beer when you're home brewing, you've either got a serious problem or you've got to get a lot of friends around for parties. So we did the usual thing. You know, we, we, we have friends around for parties and this kind of stuff. And I don't know what the trigger was. I don't know whether it was my first midlife crisis, whether it was um, a desire to be more present in my children's lives and be around a bit more because I think at that point my son believed when my son got to an age he knew the fact that I was working in London I think he thought I was a train driver right <laughs> it was every day I went to work at the train station every day I came back from work at the train station anyway long story short there came a certain point about 13 14 years ago um where I think I can't remember which crash we'd just been through. It would have been the banking crisis, wouldn't it? Mm, yeah, um, yeah, that was like 2008, 2009. Yeah, wasn't it? 2008. So I was probably consulting for JP Morgan or Deutsche Bank or, or something like that, and and it, it, it wasn't a particularly fun time. And when when we come out of that point, I think I got to a stage going, you know what, I fancy doing something different, um, and we were lucky, you know, we we were financially secure. Which means we could afford to take the risk for a few years. Mm. Um, so we we rented a unit and we 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 bought a brew house without any idea whatsoever we were doing. Um, and we started from there. And you know, and if you if you think back to those days of craft beer, it was <laughs> it's quite an interesting time. You know, I I remember 
I remember the um, Otter's Tear craft beer manifesto coming out. I remember all those kind of things. Like, that's absolute highlights and memories of just this, this really good, fun time of everyone enjoying themselves and having fun and being experimental and trying new things. And then bit by bit, you know, the brewery went from a six-barrel brewery brewing twice a week um, to a 12-barrel brewery brewing five times a week to a 12-barrel brewery brewing, I don't know, I think eight or nine times a week to a, you know, each time we stepped up, we went through it. But we never, it's hard to describe, we never jumped into that complete expansion bandwagon, if that yeah. made sense. Um and we had good fun with it. And, you know, we, we we took what we did seriously, but we never took ourselves too seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what kind of setup have you got now then? So now, so we, when did we get, our last kit arrived um, about 16 months ago, I think we've been playing with it now. Um, so we've now got a 30 heck brew house, which we can, which is sort of semi-automated. Right. Because um, I'm getting quite old and everything's getting harder as I get older. <laughs> So are you uh, still brewing yourself? Are you, you... I, I, this is the first week I haven't done at least 20% of the brewing right, well, in a long okay. time. Um, we, we hired a new brewer. Um, so there, there's always been three of us who do work production. Mm. Um, but because of, again, age, because I tend to wake up earlier than some of the youngsters who work in the right. brewery, if, if we're doing a double brew, um, because they don't have kids, so they're not they're not up at five in the morning trying to calm a child down or or, or <laughs> tell them to go back to bed. If we're doing a double brew, I tend to get into work for six a.m. and I can just walk past the, the brew house, and we're at the stage now where we can press a button. The computer does will handle eighty percent of the mash, which means the fact that I can then go upstairs and start work, and I can sit at my desk and I can be doing paperwork and. Any brewer will tell you they know every single sound inside their brewery, so they so you can tell instantly if something is not quite right. So we, we've it's taken it's taken me a while to get there, but it's got to the point now where I go in, reset the HRT, make sure the numbers are set correctly and all the valves are set correctly, get a cup of coffee, press the button, go upstairs, and I can have on my computer screen. I can have the it's not one waving. You can't see my computer screen. You can see I can see the control panel out of the corner of my eye. Um, and we can let it run. Can I just uh, um, uh, just put a, a, a pin in that for a sec? Because um, uh, that is so true about knowing every sound. And yeah. um, when I was at Sheffield Brewery Company, um, we had, I don't know if you know Carl Heron, who used to work yeah, with yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris Mont. Um, so he came to brew with me one day and um, we I was casting off into the fermenter. Now I'm, I'm partially deaf in one ear. Yeah. And so we're having this conversation um, about halfway through the the cast off, and and it goes, can you hear that? Bainey man, I'm partially deaf, and he went, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm like, what is that? And then I like like looked over to where the fermenters were, and I'd left the sample tap open. So right. all these beers, like <laughs> Just, like literally, literally, I had to go cap in hands of the owners and be like, I've yeah. lost about three barrels of beer. <laughs> right, oh, no. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, and I was amazed in my, uh, you know, with my. Um, partial hearing to actually pick on that sound. So uh, yeah, 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 I can no, totally relate to that. It might drive my wife up the wall. Again, my, my hearing in one ear is not, not as good as it, as, as it should be. Um, and um, we'll be having a conversation and I'll say, pardon, can you repeat that? Et cetera, et cetera. And then there'll be a single sound change in the brewery when I'm in the office and I'll be instantly, and she's like, okay, how can you hear that? And yet, I'm asking you a question, and you can't hear that at all. Or you pretend, you, and it, it, I'm not saying it's a bone of contention, 
but yeah, but then, and so it, it works quite well. And then and yeah. then the main blue team gets in um, at eight and take over. And it's just the last, probably, I think this is the first week where I haven't been in brewing gear, like physically dressed and mm-hmm. in brewing clothes um, so far this week, but for, right. as long as I can remember. Um, yeah, I can let go. It's honest. I I, I can do this. It, it's fine. <laughs> Breathe deeply. <sighs> yeah, it will be fine. It will be fine. I, yes, I have checked that though. But you can go away now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're lucky. We've got so we, we we've got we've got a really good team. It's a small team, and 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 it's purposefully a small team. Um, I think I like everyone to know. I don't like silos in companies. If that makes sense. Yep. So, um, and I think if you got, if you get, if your company gets too big, you end up with work production, fermentation management, cask washing, cask packaging, delivery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, we're quite, oh, we used to be, we still are quite unusual in the fact that we train quite a few brewers. So we've taken people, um, who've had no commercial brewing experience before and trained them. And, you know, and then after a certain number of years, they, it's time for them to move on. And they move on to good jobs. So, you know, not a thing, not a good job, but other jobs. So we've had guys go to uh, Brewdog, guys go to Vocation, guys go to Cloudwater. You know, it's just, mm. and it's like, and we, we, we always were happy to train people. Um, I think that was probably because I was still very hands on, if that made sense. It, yep. we, we weren't all siloed off. So it wasn't, you, you didn't need to have, so, and it worked well. You know, it's like, a, and now we've got, like we always have a really small tight team. We all get on. We all, you know, it, 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 it's a small family run company. Amazing. So you you say Red Bull has been going around thirteen years. Like, yeah. how's the brewing industry changed since twenty eleven <laughs> when you set up? And and more importantly, how have you seen Red Willow change over that time? I, I, th- I think the brewing industry's um ch- changed monumentally. You know, in some aspects for the better, some aspects not for the better. It's like it's like anything. Um, as it goes through like a boom and then and then things plateau mm. and then things change slightly. Did you ever go to the first ever Indie Man? I didn't know, no. Right. So the first ever Indie Man was just it, it was an amazing time. It was like um I think we'd been running about two years at that point, maybe three years, something like that. And we had a good relationship with a guy from Port Street. Like, and they were looking for like stupid things to do, you know, things which were interesting and crazy and this kind of stuff. And and, and we had this idea of, you know what? Why don't we take one of our core beers and we'll ferment it out with like I don't know, ten different yeast strains, something like that. <laughs> um, and, and, and like uh, I can't remember, it was Scott. That was it. it was Scott was organising it, and he went, "That sounds brilliant." And I, and I got back to the brewery and I went, "I can't do that. How am I?" Gonna... So we ended up with kind of like homebrew fermenters everywhere and beers and this kind of stuff. And <laughs> you know, it was it was. And I remember standing up on stage chatting to like a number of people and like um, going, "Right." This might be commercial suicide because some of these are absolutely terrible. But I think there was that those years ago, there was that that one that everyone wanted to learn and try something new and this kind mm. of thing. And I think that was there were so many different styles out there. You know, the the, the, the spectrum of everything from you know saison through to imperial through to this through to groups through to everyone was trying. You don't get into brewing. To make nothing but new and no PAs and hazy parallels. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I think back in that time, we were all trying stupid stuff. I mean, we've got a range of beer called, which we was always wrong called the Faithless Steers. And these are things which are ideas you want to experiment with. Um, 
And I, I look back at some of our early faithlesses, like with Thai wheat beers and kind of like, and just sort of like um, gooseberry sours back in, I can't remember when, where we actually made the lact- lactobacillus starter out of yep. our grain and infused that into it. And it was, it was you know, some things went badly wrong and got drained, but some things were just like, this is really good fun. Um, you know, putting like a gypotolase in snouts was something that we, we, that we were just having fun and playing with. Mm. And I think as as time has gone on, obviously our, our our technical aspects and our equipment's got better, our knowledge has improved, and this kind of thing. I think that's true right across the entire industry. You know, some of the, the the knowledge has been shared and gained is brilliant, but I do think we've lost some of the fun that uh, yeah. that that is why we did this. You know, I. I we we we've got you know a couple of our beers that are always in tank. You know, weightless is there's always two batches of weightless in tank. Always one active fermentation, one in dry hop, and the minute that tank's empty, another one goes into it, and that, and that means we can dial these beers in really well. Um, but like it's there's 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 like I'm rambling a bit, but there's that element between trying to find the balance between being a very consistent production brewery. And the place that you want to work and experiment and have fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's that creativity, isn't it? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Cause I remember when probably going back to a similar kind of time, 2011 ish, when um, I started discovering craft beer and I remember Thornbridge, which I've drunk Thornbridge beers before this, but started to discover some of the beers they made like um, Otto, which was a, yeah. a Doppelbock, possibly. Yeah, and, uh, yeah Bam- I think it was, yeah. Bamberg, which was like a smokes. I remember yeah. thinking it was the first time I'd ever had like a, a smokes bock. And um, I remember trying it being like, oh my God, it's like it's like drinking a sausage, <laughs> like liquid yeah, sausage, yeah. you know, and all all these like different beer styles. And, and I'm overwhelmed these days by the amount of, like you say, New England IPAs that are just flooded and i know i brewers do it and i i do it myself when i i brew you know like all the time in the back of my mind i'm like oh i brewed a stout for a while I should be one of those i'm like yeah but you know hazy ipas they sell better hey, sell it quicker you know and, and i'm only making like just over 100 liters you know and, and it can be you know, oh no this one the citra mosaic now that one was mosaic citra um, and simco <laughs> three beers in one yeah. Just yeah. yeah here's a tank of citra here's a tank of simco yeah <laughs> it's like that thing from the simpsons where they're like you know mixing the duff beer together. yeah 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 i, I know yeah i i, I it, it, it is quite fun i mean i think the and I think that that was the time when I remember I was brewing with um, Brian, who's uh, the technical director of Northern Monk. Um, yep. He spent a couple of weeks when when we were in our old location on the smaller kit. And I think him and I brewed Faithless 11 or XI as it was then, um, which was a black IPA at 6.5%. And mm. I remember that being really good fun. I remember, hit, I remember um, with somebody else shucking. 300 oysters to make an oyster stout we call a fathomless and ju- and just having like a ridiculous amount of fun um and probably eating about a third of the oysters if i'm honest when we went <laughs> through it but uh and then the sound of that many oyster shells in a copper boiling which was the it was like putting a gravel into a tumble dryer <laughs> you know it was um it was good fun you know it was genuinely good fun there were some brilliant beers made there were some terrible beers made um, but I think you you felt that there was more scope to kind of make mistakes back in those days. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now it's 
I, th- I think when you see the rise of things like untapped and this kind of stuff, just driving all ratings towards either uh, adjunct orientated imperial stouts or six point X percent variants of boar hops in a hazy malt, in a hazy base. Um, it'd be a shame if that's where we end up as an industry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd, I'd love to chat about a variety of things today, in, including what you just said. Um, you know, look, looking at some of the beers and challenges that the UK yeah. independent beer scene and market are facing at the moment. So let's start with cast beer because you make a lot yeah. of cast beers. So as a brewery that champions modern cast beer, what, what would you say the biggest challenges to cast beer are for a brewery like Red Willow? Oh, I think I think cast beer is one of these things which, um, when it's good, it's absolutely exceptional. You know, the fact that if you get a beer on whatever point of, of, of your cycle, which is best in cask, for ours is kind of, for me, it's like the end of day one where it's just like you've been served a little bit and the, the conditions are amazing and you're getting that beautiful drop as it comes down the pint mm. and it's put in front of you and you kind of almost anticipate how it's going to taste. That's amazing. So, but, but this trouble with cask beer is that it's peaked for a narrow window. Um, and I think the the challenge is for the for the publican. It's if they can't turn over that beer quick enough, um, it's the the incentive for them to just leave it on for one more day, which which then the beer degrades. Everyone knows about. Um, and and I think it's that relationship between the brewer and the salomon and the bar, and how that works, which is really important. Yeah. Um, and you know we all know that cask is devalued in the UK in terms of a price point per litre, but I think because uh, the people get such good shelf life out of keg beer, and you don't really need to know how to look after keg beer as well. You know, look after cask beer. I think the danger is that cask beer will just either disappear slightly, or the choice will get increasingly limited. You know, like I remember, like, oh, I love walking into a bar where you've got like either two perfectly kept cast beers or five perfectly kept cast beers. But it's hard to drive that market. You need the beer to be in the best condition in order to sell well. And and how do you bootstrap that as a um as as a as a new pub, as a new settlement, getting that reputation for serving really good cast beer. Mm. Um when when we saw the the sort of slow wasn't when we came out of lockdown the demand for cast beer was monumental. Um so I think during lockdown everyone had been drinking cold fizzy cans at home and this kind of stuff and there was this big resurgence in cask beer um straight out straight out the gates of lockdown um and then as you know as we hit things like economy slowing down and people aren't going out midweek it, it's a challenge to work out when to put the cask beer on to make sure it's in the right condition for the right time because you may not have the footfall during the midweek mm. um for example that we, we we bought a huge number of pins um just so we can supply our customers with pins so they can Instead of having one firkin on, they can put two pins on and then try and keep that uh, consistency of the beer running through it. Yeah. Are you um, getting a, an uptake on pins from publicans? Uh, oh, huge, huge. Really? That's interesting. Um, um, and and then you, you'll speak to some people and they'll go, well, it's not worth putting a pin as a brewer because it's almost the same amount of work to fill the pin and this kind of stuff. But I think we have to support the industry we work in. You know, without pubs, we don't exist or we exist in supermarkets and, and wherever. Um, so, is that how do we support each other and what's right for our publicans, our customers, you know, and to make sure the fact that our product is served in the best way and we've got a good route to market for what we produce. Mm. Um, 
it's it can't be viewed as a as a them and us relationship. It has to be we're all in this together. We've all got to take a bit of pain. We're all got to work out how to keep this going. Yeah. Um, I mean, what 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 do you think could help push the value of cast beer to today? Uh, if it was all if it was consistently good everywhere. And, and I think this is some of the hardship, isn't it? It's how do you ensure a product which has got a very finite shelf life is consistently good in all locations? Um, mm. And how do you educate people that they know that they can go, actually, this isn't quite right, um, you know, as a customer and take it back? Um, and then, or how do you stop a customer trying it once again? Oh, no, I'll stick to cask. Okay, rather. Um, it, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, mm. It's, uh, I, I've got a personal affinity for, you know, so I, I really like best bitters on cask. I think, I think, I think oh, a perfect yeah. best bitter on cask is, and we're seeing a big resurgence in best bitter. Now we've, we've been making a, a best bitter called Feckless for pretty much since we started. And we've definitely seen in the last two years a huge uptick in the sales of it. It used to be a sort of like booed every three weeks and now it's booed without fail once a week. Wow. Um, which is which is show, and then I think some of that was because we refined the recipe over over period over the last two years. We've gone to a single hop farm, um, so we always know it's that hop farm, and that hop farm only we buy the hops from for that beer, mm. and that's helped to sort of drive that consistency in flavour and quality through through that particular beer. Yeah, and that that made a big difference actually. Yeah, other I mean, you brew quite a lot of. Um, beer styles. Are there any yeah. styles in particular that get you excited the most, and and which of those styles? Um, well, l- let me phrase it differently. Um, wh- which styles get you excited the most? The most going to cask, and then yeah. which to go into you know more a uh, heavily carbonated package? Yeah, like so, keg or can. Um, I, I I've still got this thing in my head that I want the perfect English pale bitter, and I've not not done it yet at all. Um, but like, no, and, it, and it's generally when it gets to autumn and I'm walking the dog back down the canal and it's that perfect evening. And all I can think of is I want to walk into a pub with a fire and have that perfect pint of English cask bitter, like not too, you no, know, just, just light golden. And then just sit there and with this like dog at your foot, sort of a newspaper, pint of beer, and then walk over and see the family. And that's, that's the kind of mental image that I've got in my head that I want to drive that beer towards. Mm. Um, we've done a few iterations of it and 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 it will get there but it's that for me is the sort of what i get excited about i get excited about really good best bitter really good cast bitter really good pale that's drinkable and accessible um that has a finish that hasn't got doesn't just go on and on just has a definite amount of bitterness to it i think i think we got a bit scared of bitterness with the rise of different styles of beers um and then you can't beat a good pint of porter. I'm more of a porter person than a stout person. Oh, um, interesting. Well, every, that's gone. No, every time we try and every time I brew, I brew a stout. Quite often, comes out like a porter. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a little barrier inside my head. Nice. Well, I mean, that brings us nicely on to talking about your heritage porter. Yeah. So, I was at Indie Beer Feast in Sheffield with my friend Paddy recently, and um, which is, uh, how I think how we ended up talking on this podcast me, me and yeah. very drunk having a conversation with hannah and hannah sent and, me a um, photo of these two people being asking about cold ipa for the last half hour was that you two it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness totally forgotten about that yes it was us yeah and then um we had a moment where hannah and i can't remember the other guy's name 
Um, uh, it'd be Tom, I'm guessing. Oh, it'd be Dom, it. Tom or Dom. Right. We're, we're, we're serving and some blokes came up and they're like, oh, what are these beers then? And they obviously didn't know that much about craft beers. Yeah. Me and Paddy started selling them your beers. Oh, I should try this one and this one. And I was taste of this. And But um, w- one of the beers there was the um, the Heritage Porter, yeah. which is just like absolutely fantastic. So, I mean, I'd love you to, you know, talk about um, using the Heritage Malts, I presume, yeah. uh, used for that and how you yeah. approached like... Um, this 19th century beer recipe and what advice you give to brewers out there interested in using heritage malts to create these yeah. historic beers? It's, it's, I think it's obviously Chris Maltings that we, um, we get a, a heritage malt from. I, I get on really well with Mike, who's our, um, our contact point with yeah. uh, Chris Malting. So we've used, I think, every single one of the heritage malts that they're, 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 they're the we've used. And, and Chevalier, I really like. Chevalier is, um, it's this lovely, it's got this almost innate oranginess to it. Oh, it's like sort of marmalade eating marmalade, it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's just, it's just, it's just beautiful. And and, it, and it's really lovely. And you can just use that and nothing else. And you end up with this glowing pint and it's just fantastic. And then I remember when we were playing around with it, because we've, we've done a fair few beers in the kind of heritage series. We've done sort of like, like we've done like pure heritage pails and we've done, and we've done sort of mild, and we've done this, that, and the other. And, and I think the, the thing I like about things like the heritage porter and the double heritage porter are are that ability to layer flavours on top of each other. Yeah. And I think that that's the point which is really fun in brewing. It's just like I, I do. I love cooking, so like um, it, it, cooking is my my current obsession. It's been in my obsession for years, but you know. Is a fact that I think I'm quite glad when I got, that I'm this age now where I'd never be stupid enough to go, I want to work in a kitchen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because my knees wouldn't take it, my back wouldn't take it, my wife wouldn't take it for a start. <laughs> uh, I'm lucky I, I didn't. I, so, but it's that, it's that how you layer the, flavor, the layers up. So, we think about the Heritage Porter. Um, you know, we started looking back at um, sort of the work that Ron Patterson's done and reading through some of his recipes and reading through some of the, the blogs and this kind of stuff and then just chatting with other brewers and then bit by bit starting. So the the Heritage Porter um, has, you know, it obviously has Chevalier malt in there. It has like it has a large amount of black malt in there. has a large amount of amber malt in there. has chocolate malt in there. has brown malt in there. Um, less chocolate malt than you'd expect, more brown mm. malt. Um, and then it has top of my head. Uh, um, uh, that's that's the predominantly it. So it's, it's mainly sort of like black malt, chevalier malt, amber malt, um, and a tiny bit of chocolate malt. Um, but chevalier malt is is the, is the core backbone to that beer. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's it's trying to balance that because without malt base, you get quite a robust bitterness anyway. Yep, and it's how do you then balance off the bitterness from the hops against that robust bitterness that you get from um, the malt? Um, and so for us, what we do, we we actually dial the bitterness back in the copper a little bit, and then and then we sensibly whirlpool um, with hops, and we're always using English hops in that bit. Yeah. So for that, we're using like large amounts of Target, which has got that Target's got this. Uh, if you start thinking about hops in terms of color. Um, if that makes vague sense, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that you sort of like, it's almost got a deep purple sort of like sort of taste for me. It's that kind of real English hedgerow and just kind of like, it, it, it's a comforting hop. Um, and then we tend to finish that off with Goldings and Amarillo, which have both got that sort of like, you know, the Goldings got that lovely orangey marmalade, which then complements again against the Chevalier more. And Amarillo 
is probably my favorite of that side of hopping the US where you just get that tiny bit of zesty orange lift up from it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and those are these beers. We had a, uh, a bit of a, not disaster, but it was quite good fun brew with it. So we do a version of that beer called Double Heritage Porter, which is 8.8% from memory, um, which was, again, one of these ideas about we really like Heritage Porter. That's brew on slightly stronger. So about three, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we decided to do a party guide brew. So we mashed in Double Heritage Porter, and the idea being the fact that we're mashing 900 kilos for um, Double Heritage Porter. We take that, we take the first runnings into the copper, we take the second runnings into the whirlpool, we take the first, we mash it in again, and do the same thing again. And the idea being the fact that we were aiming to get out of it a 8.8% beer and Heritage Porter, which is 5.3% beer out of it. Um, no, we're aiming to get a dark mild actually out of three point five. Our efficiencies from the brew were such we ended up getting like double heritage porter, heritage porter, and then I'm pretty sure we got about two thousand liters of the dark mild at the same mash at the same time. Nice, um, but yeah, so it's good fun. But it's it, it would have been better if it wasn't on a Friday. And we didn't get so we started work at six and we got home at eight. Nice, <laughs> so it wasn't much fun. But nice. That's the fun we have with beers. It's just like it's layering those flavors up, layering the hops on top of it, and just trying to get a bit of nuance from each one as it comes to it. Yep. I'm quite interested to know with the heritage more how, yeah. you, like, you, your mashing regime. Um, because so I, I, I yeah. tried brewing um, a heritage ESB the Christmas right. before last, and listeners to the podcast will know that where the story is going, but um, basically. I mashed it at like 68C and it stalled at 10.30. So I was yeah. like, crap, I've got this beer that I can have a dump. Yeah. You know, and like I say, it was only, this was only like 100 litres. And I was just like, well, you know, it's still 100, you know, it's like 100 litres, mm. yeah. 100 hectolitres. It's like the same length brew day. So I was like, well, can I have a dump it or can add some Bretton and Mice's and PD Cockers to it, leave it for nice. me and see what nice. happens, which is what I did. And now it's in Udbrun. Um, you know, and it's it's had some really good feedback. But I discovered very quickly that you can't just treat heritage malt like, you know, Maris Otter or Best no. Ale or Lager Malt. So, like, I'm just interested to know how you handled the heritage malt. So, yeah, so MO's, like Maris Otter, is really forgiving, isn't it? The, the, yep. the window that it'll operate in is ridiculous. We tend to match quite low with um, Javaria. Um, so we tend to match about 65 and a half. Right, and we okay, also okay. tend to match quite wet. So um, if we're mashing in um, uh, one of our core beers, like Weightless or Reckless, um, we'll mash in 2.6 litres a kilo um, of water. If we're mashing in uh, with Chevalier, we'll, uh, we'll tend to mash in at 2.8, 2.9. Right. So we'll keep it wetter. Um, and also, we we will rake for longer. We're quite lucky we've got a raked mash done. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll just keep everything moving for like 10, 15 minutes before we let it settle down. Um, and then we always research over the, over the uh, mash for quite a long time. It runs right. clear. Um, and even then, we still find our beers, those beers do terminate higher than we would be them out. But I think some of that's part of the charm. You know, yep. you've got that, you've got that residual sweetness and be it, be it readiness, which is coming through from it, or be it just the marmalade notes, which is coming through. For, I mean, this, this one here is like, um, it's your barrier malt, um, uh, and a tiny bit of crystal. Um, and it's like, it's like, again, as you say, pure marmalade, but that was mashed mm. quite cool. Um, 
And then we tend to compensate for, as you say, the higher residuals we'll get on these by either, in, in this particular case, really pushing the IBUs. So this one um, is probably what, it's 5.3%, um, and it's probably about 50, 60 IBUs. And right. you need that kind of um, cut through um, any residual sugars you've got in there and just balancing to IBU out. Right. Um, and then, and then we then we hop it really heavily. Um, I think this had thirty kilos of goldings in there, which is just like a, you know it's a bonkers level of goldings to use. Um, but again, it's just trying to balance that. You can what you you can you can get the, the residual sugars down. You know, by like sort of slightly longer mash times, or slightly cooler mash times, making sure your mash pH is absolutely bang on, sort of around the three point three five point three mark. Um, and then get make sure your salts are all correct for what you're trying to do. Um, but then it's understanding that it's a different beast to Maris Otter, and therefore mm. you wouldn't just brew the same type of recipe you're going to brew with it. You would, you know, compensate for it by either your salt composition or your or your your hops or whatever you're trying to do to, to balance everything together. Yeah, um, I think balance is balance is the thing which you know separates like a, an okay beer from a good beer. You know, and, and as long as balance is appropriate for style, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's making sure everything melds together, mm. um, and yeah. that and that's what I really like. It's just sort of and that's what I like about those malts is the fact that it's not just mashing half a ton of ammo, throw some citra into it, maybe a bit of caramel, some torrefied, and 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 a pale beer comes out of it. You have to think about the composition of the beer at the end. Mm. You've got the mosaic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Which is ironic like given how much mosaic I have on contact. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. doing our, we're getting ready for our month end stock take tomorrow. And I just looked at the pile of mosaic and went, yeah, it's quite expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so while, while we're talking about um, aged beers and that sort of thing, so you yeah. said via email um, that you've got a Foda Lager that's been in wood for a year coming out. Soon. 378 days now. Right. Or just so, now. Yeah. So uh, talk about that. I mean, um, one of the things we're oh. quite interested to know about as well is, I mean, I've never yeah. used a Foda. I've only dreamt of owning one. Uh, but what, what do brewers need to consider when buying one and, and how so, do you get the best out of it? So It was, have you ever gone on the internet late at night and bought something and then thought, what am I going to do with it? <laughs> It's happens to us all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe not a phone, but bit, other things. Yeah, it's a little bit different when a three thousand liter phone turns up. So, um, I, uh, about three years ago, we got uh, we got an email from our barrel dealer, for want a better word, uh, and she said, "I've got this three thousand liter white oak um, uh, soda. Would you would you be interested?" And I, I must have I possibly had a beer or two. I said, oh, I love a soda, and um, we bought it. And that turned up, and that, and we weren't hundred percent sure what we were going to do with it. So um, we thought the best thing to do with it was to brew a sort of slightly more complex lager. So we brewed a lager which had quite a lot of spelt in it and other things in there. Uh, let it get probably fifty percent of the way through attenuation, and then move the lager into the folder. Um, at that point, we were getting quite obsessed with lagers. We were getting you know sort of like. I think you hit that point as a brewer when you you start obsessing about the about lagers, which is a really weird thing to do. <laughs> about it, the pure simplicity of it, and there's nowhere to hide. You know, it's just it's just it's just 
simple. Um, so we 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 booed this um, this beer and put it into the photo. We left it in there for three months, four months, just to find out what the characteristics of the photo were. We didn't want to brew a really expensive beer and put it in there and find out that it wasn't going to balance the sauce. So we thought we'd brew a lager, put it in, see what went. And we did that, and it came out. It was really nice. It was really interesting. Um, and then, and then that photo started getting used for other things. So we did a, um, we did a sort of a, an English IPA that again was very golden centric. That we then put into that photo, and we left it in there for ages to try and replicate that sea journey kind of um, idea. Yep. I think we even had videos taken of somebody throwing, wearing galoshes and getting water thrown over them. Is <laughs> very tedious, but. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we bought, honestly a year and a half ago, we bought this Cherrywood photo. Um, and it kind of landed at exactly the wrong time when um, we were quite busy. Uh, I think it was just post-lockdown or something like that. Um, we still had our warehouse that was separate to the main brewery. So it, was, it wasn't far away, but it was very mm-hmm. difficult to get there with a forklift truck. Um, so the photo ended up getting moved into um the back corner of a warehouse um and we had this again spelt heavy um lager that we brewed so we thought we'll put it in there and when we get time we'll go and deal with it um and so this was a brand new cherrywood folder um and it was absolutely beautiful i mean it's a stunning three three thousand two hundred liter um uh, vessel um and then we got really busy because the new brew house arrived then we were moving warehouses and we were trying to get a new can line up and running and if I'm honest, we kind of forgot about this beer. <laughs> and it sat at the back of the warehouse in a place that we couldn't get the forklift to, and we couldn't get to that easily. And every sort of month or so, we'd go up and try it. And it's quite interesting when you watch at the stages that a beer goes through when it's in wood. Mm. So obviously when it goes in there at first, it's still got fairly active primary fermentation taking place. So it's like um, it's, it's got a little bit of wood character coming through, but not much. And then over time, um, it starts picking up some of the tannins out of the wood and then it starts picking up um, the bugs which are in there once the primary sort of a yeast strain dies out, start to come to life. And um, for as it went through uh, a tiny bit of brett and then Pedicock was kicked in, you end up with this um, Pedicock sickness where you end up with these ropes forming in it. And it's really more gelatinous. And then we, we ignored it again for another three or four months and then the breath started to breaking down the pedicocus and the lactobacillus starts coming in. Um, and you, you've got no control. You know, it's just purely simply doing what it's doing. Um, and about three weeks ago, three weeks about that, um, my landlord finally said, you know that old warehouse that I've been keeping that photo in free of charge for three or four months? We really have to move it because I rented that unit out. So... We, we sort of took out all the beer out of it by stainless steel IBC and moved it back into uh, steel. And when it first came out, it was, I think interesting was the, was the best way of describing it. You could definitely <laughs> taste the breadth. You could, there were tannins were really quite um, uh, marked on the back of the back of the throat. And we thought we were going to have to blend it um, with something else. But as the beer chilled down and started to lager, um, it sort of rounded out a bit and the carbonation lifted it up again. And it's, it, it, I'm not saying it's it's a little bit challenging, but it's challenging in a good way. It's a beer that you would sip, and you just got, and each sip gives you a slightly different note. You'll get, uh, you might get some of the bretty note, you might get some of the tannins coming through, you might pick up some of the little highlights from the sort of, of tartness coming through on it. But underneath it all is this wonderful, ready, spelt, and Hannah 
malt base loveliness. Sounds um, truly spectacular. I'm, I'm drooling <laughs> just hearing <laughs> the description. <laughs> just hook it to my veins. Yeah, but it, and, it, and I think this, this is the thing I, I love about the sort of lager styles is the fact that when when, when they work, they work so well. Um, we, we, we brew a, a lamb beer with the Hannah Malt, which Chris Maltings bring in, that's so clean and so bready. And, you know, we, we tend to lager all those beers for at least eight to ten weeks and mm. and, and just let them sit there and do their thing. Um, yeah. I think we, we're, quite, we're quite lucky in that we've got a ridiculous number of FVs, but we've never... I don't think we've sold any FVs in, in donkey's years. So as we've got bigger... We've ended up with some 20 heck FVs, some 30, some 40. And so the advantage of having that many FVs is we can leave beers to do their thing and, and get and become white. Um, yeah. So if we want to lager a beer for 12 weeks, we can lager a beer for 12 weeks. There's no production pressure to go, that beer has to come out tomorrow. Yep. Um, and, and as long as we, so we've got a bank of four, five FVs that, we can't really tend to use any of the core beers. Um, so any beer that we think this could come good, they're good. We'll just park it and let it do its <laughs> thing uh, nice. and and sit there. So yeah, it's quite good fun. Have um, have you got your own packaging line? I presume yeah. you have. Yeah, I'm quite interested when it comes to packaging beers that are like Bretted or yeah. Peter Cox or Lactobacillus in. Like, um, what what's your approach of packaging those beers? Paranoia. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay. So um, <laughs> everything. So everything. So we tend to. If we're going to do that because um, we, we have made a mistake once in the past, and you never ever make that mistake again. They tend to be very expensive. So it's obviously always standard CIP. The line stripped back. The line dismantled if it has to be. Seals replaced. ATP swabs on every single piece of equipment you can do. You know the, the fill heads taken off and soaked in caustic, and then a full PA again. So you end up looping around that cycle and cycle and cycle. Um, and it's, it's diligence, you know, it's like, it, it's a standard joke that you ask any brewer what your job's like, and I'll say, well, it's applied cleaning. <laughs> you know, it's, um, the, the years ago, so I'm a biochemist by training who went to work on IT. My wife's a chemist. Um, one of my friends is a physicist and what, and his wife is a mathematician. And there's a standard joke which goes on, which is like, well, you know, sort of biochemistry is nothing more than applied chemistry. Chemistry is nothing more than applied physics. Physics is nothing more than applied math. And brewing is nothing more than applied cleaning. <laughs> you know, you, yep. you're creating something, an environment that bacteria would love to grow in. So, yeah, you need to be really, really, really clean. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that because I had, coming back to that, Ud Brown I was talking about earlier, I was, um, after, I, you know, it was fine when it was in tank, but then I was like, I've got a package of this. I was like, I'm going to do it, you know, because like yeah. my, my setup, I've got like a, a small canning machine. I was like, I really don't want to run that beer through there. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, what am I going to do? So I ended up like bottling it, but then like yeah. all the hoses and everything, the pump, I was like, crap, have I just like completely infected my brew house? You know, like, <laughs> and yeah. in, in, incidentally, I think it was, um, if I remember right, it was Jim Rangely from Abbeydale who said a, yeah. about you guys, um, you know, do having the same setup and having to like caustic and wash everything. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I pretty much just like hammered the hell out of it and then changed all the hoses and soft parts. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's remarkably pernicious, you know, but it really is. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's just cleanliness, 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 and and swabbing every single thing you can swab. Yeah, um, and ATP swabs, 
I, if you'd asked me five years ago um, if I would ever think I'd go through as many ATP swabs as I did as adenine triphosphate swabs, I'd have said, no, of course I'm not. And then, yeah, you just check everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe I should have got some of those because uh, the tank that in question has now got a beer in it for a beer festival. <laughs> so uh, I'll, 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 I shall find out by mid-April where, what has happened to that beer. What style of beer is it? Um, it is a British hopped pale ale. So it's nice. got a Harlequin, Moston Mystic, although I'm aware that Most is Czech, but don't tell anyone. It's, it, it was grown in the UK, so that's that's yeah. how we get around it. Um, but it's it, it basically it's meant to be like a smaller version of a, um, a British topped IPA that I've got a little bit of traction with, right. in England's green and peasant land. So um, I've kind of dumbed it down and used a thialized yeast, which is the first time I've used one. I was like, um, at the end of fermentation, I was like, this is, there's an aroma here that I, I I know what it is, but I can't describe it. And I yeah. kept smelling it and I, and I brought it to my wife and I was like, what, what does this smell like? She's like, yeah, there's a smell to that. And then my daughter, who's nearly 13, was like, can I try it? I was like, yeah, you know, it's only 3.8%. Yeah. So yeah, have a, have a bit. And she went, oh, it smells of poo. <laughs> and I was like, it's all for us. That's yeah. what it is, you know. And um, and I, I emailed um, the supplier and they were like, oh yeah, that... Those thialized yeast kick off um, sulfurs and hence the eggy fart smell. So well yeah. done to your daughter who could be a Cicerone one day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on. Keep did, it you, did you modify the mash at all to try and like uh, increase styles? Or I didn't realise you needed to do that until afterwards. Yeah. Uh, right. It was only, it was only once I got this aroma that I was like, um, I, I should read about this. So I went through um, Scott Janish's book, the new yeah. IPA and read about it there and some of the stuff he's posted online and, I was like, yeah, okay, maybe I should have appre- approached it differently. I wasn't. I was just going to use um, something like Fermentis USO five in it. Yeah. Um, but my friend Sam from Grizzly Grains is another brewer in Sheffield. Yeah. Um, had got this yeast and said, "Oh, do you want some?" So he dropped it off in this jar, and I was just like, oh, "Well, you, I, you I, could you could not use it." Exactly, you know, and I mean, I've not got a microscope, so I was like, I'm probably vastly overpitching here. So at first, I thought, oh, maybe I've overpitched it. That's why I'm getting this smell. But it was the it is the yeast. Now, now it's been dry hopped. It tastes great. And right. At the time, I was a bit like, oh man, this is this is un- unless the I've dry never, hops do something miraculous, yeah. it's going to be terrible. <laughs> no, never. I've never used it. I've, I've done a bit of reading about it, and there's, there's everything from you know, grape skinned in the mash and this kind of stuff, and then mm. all the all these weird and wonderful and wacky stuff. And it's a sort of thinking that can be quite interesting. Um, so is, it, is it dried white grape skins they're using in the U S to sort of drive the files out I th- of it? I, th- I think so. Um, yeah. I've heard, um, hot mashing helps as well. Yeah. Again, I didn't do it, but, but with this beer, I, I basically did one high gravity mash and then, um, cast off half into the fermenter in question. Yeah. Then added citra to the brew kettle um and gave it another secondary whirlpool and then cast the other half off so i'm literally only getting like two firkins and a couple of pins <laughs> out of each one so but yeah. again it's like you were saying earlier like you know i i can really appreciate that that beer nerdery having yeah. you know started as a home brewer then gone to work in a commercial brewery now have brought it back as a commercial home brewer like yeah end of the day it's like it, it, you know there is part of me that's like oh yeah but 
I might get really bad check-ins and untaps and everyone will hate me. Um, but then part of it's like, you know, I, if I don't try these yeasts and stuff, I'm never mm. going to find out, you know, and it, yeah. it's only sometimes you hit upon something and you're like, oh, right, okay, that's how you get that flavour. And then, you know, you put that in your toolkit and you leave the stuff yeah. that didn't work so well, not in your toolkit. Yeah, completely agree. I think I think that, that entire sort of like you need to try something and play with it and find out what the impact's going to be on it. And every every single mistake you make, it's a whole it's cliche, isn't it? You learn something from and every, everything that, or like not mistaken, like, wow, how did that happen? It's like it making sure that you keep copious notes when you're brewing in this kind yeah. of stuff because you will change something one day without realising it. And, mm. and 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 the outcome could be magnificent unless you can go back and chase change find exactly what you did to get there. Yeah. Then yeah. 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 It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, like, like it's, it's quite funny when I'm cooking my wife goes, You you never write anything down. So like, you ask me to make something and you never write it down. Like why is that? and she got a point. It's the fact that it's not that you, you should record everything you do to make to, to improve. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I do, even on this small scale. Um, that's what I do, but that's what I did, you know. That that's what I learned when I was at Sheffield Brewery. Like the um, one of the directors who was the brewer before I took over his role, you know, it'd be like change one thing at a time. Because I'd weighed in, yes. like being like, oh, we're gonna, this beer's crap. We're going to change this and change that. And change that. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. no, just change one thing at a time. You know, write it down, and um, you know, it is. It was only in that process of of making some of those beers, particularly the ones I didn't like, and then mm. the process of slowly changing them over time, that you really learn to be a brewer. I think, yeah, because it's anyone, quote unquote, can brew a beer. And yes. you know, put whatever in it, but to replicate something again and again, so it has that consistency of flavour. Particularly when you know you're combating um, different hop harvests from different years, yeah. and the water profile that's changing. If your water's being drawn from different reservoirs, it's, I mean, it really is an ending, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's it, where the real skill comes in as a brewer. I, I completely agree. I think the um, one of the things I, I really appreciate about us, us having a well-defined core of beers is the fact that you know when we when we take a new brewer on or, or we're brewing, it's that that ability to make the same beer over and over again, which with a variable, as you say, a variable set of ingredients, be it water, be it be it hops, be it the, the malt bill changing, is as you say that that's the skill. Um, it's you know you, you look at some people. I remember when I first started brewing, people were kind of sneering at some of the really big breweries. And you know, sort of like a, you know, the Heineken and whatever. You look back and you go, they produce a remarkably consistent product on a massive scale, day yep. in, day out. Yeah, they gotta know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. You'd be all these fast brewers go, well, they're not true brewers. I was like, no, no, they're they're the true brewers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, Budweiser might be crap, but it's consistently crap. It's really and it's, crap. Yeah. And you, you know yeah. it's going to be the same crap every time. And, mm. you know, I think, well, this comes back to the Caspier conversation we were having earlier. Like this, it, it, the, the quality is so changeable. And and then mm. obviously you throw Caspier into the mix, which is a, a changeable product anyway, just by yeah. nature of it being exposed to the elements once it's been tapped. Yeah. Um, it, like, you know, n- no wonder that a, a lot of, quote-unquote non-craft beer drinkers, just your average punter, you know, sticks with well-known brands because they are consistent and inoffensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and it's 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 a bit like, like when you have an amazing beer from an independent microbrewery, it's fantastic. But then, you know, you can have some really terrible ones and you're just yeah. like, oh, wow. 
great. Yeah, <laughs> we, I completely agree. We've got we, we've um we've got we've got two bars, and in both bars, like headless, which is our three point nine sort of cascade pale, is is house ample in both those bars. Um, and I remember once I tried to change it, and then I got shouted at by the customers. So, so it's it's still it's still always be that bit. But there's one guy who, more accurately than me, can tell how much beer is left in that cask by the taste of it. Wow. He drinks. He comes in every single night, and he has like a two pints of it, and then he goes home without fail. You know, sort of five nights a week. Uh, uh, and if and if the cask is tapped at exactly the point that he's happiest with it, which I think is about day day one, he'll have three pints and then go home. It'll <laughs> 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 be even telling the barman. Uh, that that beer's about to, you know, I reckon you've got about five pints left in there. You know, and it's like, he's, just because he will, and if we don't have that beer on, he won't drink anything in the bar. Um, and, and I kind of respect somebody who's that dialed in to the product that they like and they know how it changes over his lifespan in the cask. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's pretty epic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I have to ask, as a, as a brewery that's so close to Manchester, which has, you know, got a plethora of breweries with a national yeah. footprint, what's what's it like selling beer into a city like that? Or, or you Manchester. know, yeah, do you, do you have a good foot in the door? Because you were there well before the likes of like Cloudwater. I think, I, I, think I think we're quite lucky in that we're viewed as part of, if you're a lot of people consider an honorary Manchester brewery to a large extent, yeah. Mm. You know, we, we, we probably sell more direct into Manchester than we do into into other cities um, yeah. in the area. Um, <laughs> we've been around for ages. <laughs> it's, it's really quite funny. I, remember, I can't remember which... Uh, um, it's... Yeah, I, and I think we are... I, we, I like to think we've got a reputation for being consistent and for being, more importantly, nice people to deal with, yep. if that makes sense. Um and it's like yeah and you know we we've got we've got really good accounts we got like we got like uh, really good people we know we're good friends with them all um it's it's a nice it's a nice community um I don't think there's no I it's good fun you know it, it, and there's some brilliant beer up there and I love I was at um Squawk's uh very soft opening of the Pelican last night in Manchester right. um and uh, it, it was wonderful I go. I left work, I got home, jumped on a train, I was in Manchester 25 minutes later, walked into a bar, and the entire of the Manchester brewing scene more or less was there. <laughs> and it, it was like a trade convention. It, it, it was great. And it, 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 it's a lovely bunch of people. We all got on, and and, uh, and we've been lucky enough. I think it'd be hard now for Manchester, for Manchester Brewery to break into Manchester. Yeah. Um, but I think we're reasonably well established. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and we, which helps. I would never be complacent about that mm. um, because there, there's some amazing beer coming from like lots of breweries in the UK at the moment. Yeah. Um, so what, what what about selling beer into other places then? So obviously, you know, you're very close to Manchester and you've been around a long time. So yeah. it's, you know, um, but like, let, let's say like you're approaching other cities um, and places that have pretty well-established beer scenes. How would yeah. you, how do you find that? Uh, it, it really depends. So I think if if it's an inbound call from uh, a city we don't sell a huge amount into, so there's certain cities which have a really well-defined beer scene. Now, so you've obviously got Sheffield, um, Nottingham's not bad. You've got Bristol mm. and this kind of stuff where where we get um, where we get occasional we, we use distributors quite a lot. 
So um, we we tend to deliver directly within about a 30 to 40 mile radius of Bagglesfield. Um, and then apart from that, it's mainly distributors who, who handle our sort of sales in that area. But it's, yeah, I think everyone likes to try, or historically, everyone likes to try a new beer. Um, mm. Everyone likes to try new things. Um, and that worked quite well. Um, but I think it's, I think we're going to start to see the brewing world get more local, if yep. that makes sense. Yeah. It does It does feel the fact that, that that era of like mass expansion with beer going absolutely everywhere um, and there being, at some level, very little regional variation in what you got in, you know, if you went into a craft beer bar in Manchester or went to a craft beer bar in Bristol or London, I could guarantee I could name at least two of the beers or three of the breweries that should be on in those bars, um, regardless of which bar it was I could walk into. Um, and I think as time goes on, we'll probably see, I'm hoping we'll see a bit more localization because it's always not a, there's, I remember going to, I was in Barcelona, well, I was in Porto in Portugal, and I walked into a bar and, 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 and I, 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 I love Brown to death. There was Northern Monk Faith on. I was like, <laughs> I'm really sorry. I can drink that wherever I want to. <laughs> you know, it's just, and it's a, and it's a fantastic beer. But if I, if I go somewhere, I want to drink beer from that area, if that makes yeah. sense. No, it totally makes sense. I um, I was in Whitby um, a couple of years ago, and there's a little bottle shop there called the Green Dragon. Right. And I, I walked through the door and thinking, oh, I could pick up some beers locally yeah. now, there's obviously this Whitby brewery which is just up the road from it um but I thought you know what else is from around this area and I walked through the door I was like oh Abbeydale you know literally around the corner from yeah. where yeah. this is Abbeydale and the, yeah you know brew by numbers and cloud water and all, all the rest of them and and I said oh have you got anything local apart from Whitby and they were like no not really yeah and um I know um Steve Dunkley was at being a vo um, yeah. has been writing on his latest Twitter feed. I think he started a YouTube channel um, right. where he's documenting. Um, I think it might be called Brewery Travels. I'm sure he'll correct me if he listens to this and it's wrong. Um, but he basically started documenting when he's going places like yeah. seeking out local beer. Um, yeah. Because actually, if you go to something like um, Ciba Beerettes, you know, I'm, I'm amazed, always amazed at the amount of different breweries and logos. Mm. So I'm like, I've never heard of that brewery before. Yeah. I think that's and a you, wonderful yeah. thing because they're serving their local communities. And why yeah. should I know about a brewery that's in Oxford or in, you know, Devon or somewhere? Yeah. I, I think it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? If you, if you think back about, was it about five years ago or six years ago that Camo started their locale thing? And it was mm, all, yeah, yeah. And they were trying to put the, the, the toppers on pump clips that this is a beer produced within X many miles. And I must admit, over time, I was a bit, who cares? And and I don't know whether it's an age thing or, or the fact that I want to drink beers from an area that I'm in. But I kind of really quite appreciate it now. Um, and I, I like the idea. I wouldn't want to go to. Oh, I've got to say Spain, that was a really bad example. I want to go to the farm to neat fish and chips. Yeah. You know, is a fact yep. that if I'm in a different area, I've got to say Spain, I want to eat fish and chips. It's <laughs> <laughs> possibly the worst country I could have been for that example. But I want, uh, and, you know, if I go to the Dordogne, I want to eat that kind of food. If I want to go to Perpignan, you know, I want to eat this kind of food. I want something that's local to the area that they're just part of where they are. Um, 
and I'm you know I'm, I'm not saying beers in anywhere near the same category as that, but it would be nice to go somewhere and you know if the best beer you drink isn't the beer that tastes whatever it's when is the beer that you have the best memories of drinking. Yeah. Um, and and those memories are made when you're with friends and with your family and you're not just sat at home with a box of cans that you bought off eBay that you didn't open that you traded for somebody else um, because of an untapped score. Yep. It's not going to make you happy. Checking him in on uh, certain yellow coloured apps. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Is is the fact that that's not happiness. Happiness is having a beer going, oh, that tastes nice. Anyway, how are you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's well, it's the compliment, yeah. isn't it? And it's um, you know, like I think that's for for me personally why I enjoy the pub so much. Um, yeah, because w- whether I'm meeting a friend there or I go in by myself and I'm just chatting to someone behind the bar, it's a bit of camaraderie, isn't it? You yeah. know, and yeah, you, exactly. you can see why there are people that will literally go to the pub and you know they might just be sat there reading their paper. Um, yeah. but it's like it's just a little bit of human contact somewhere, which certainly definitely beats being uh, sitting at home drinking cans of John Smiths or whatever. Yeah, those I, I, taps. I, I, <laughs> Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, there's like in, in one of our bars, there's um, there's a guy called Derek who comes in, um, and he sits at the end of the bar, and he'll nurse half a pint for two hours, doing the crossword, and having a banter with the staff, and just sort of saying, "Right, what's this? What's this clue? What's that clue?" And then he goes home. You know what? I, I I don't know anything about him apart from that, but he's got human contact for a couple of hours, and and that's really important. Um, and I think that that's. There's, that's the difference between a, a pub and a, a bar, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, for, I, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. Um, I'd, I'd love to ask one more question. What's next for Red Willow and what can people look forward to over the next year? I think I think for us, it's... One of the, it's going to sound really silly. I quite enjoyed... <laughs> I'm really, really going to regret saying this. From a brewing perspective, I quite enjoyed lockdown, yeah, because I no longer had the pressure to produce vast quantities of reckless and weightless and, and yep. all those core beers. And, and, and I got the chance to be a bit more creative. And I think some of our best beers that we've made in a while came out of that when there wasn't that pressure to hit production targets. Um, and it, I think it's, you know, with everyone in the industry seeing the fact that it's not as buoyant as it was, you know, it's the fact that, it, and, but so for us, it's taking that as an advantage to play with different styles, play with different things, having more fun with the barrel aging stuff. Um, indulge my obsession with lagering. Um, and I was <laughs> saying that the price of electricity, who knows? Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's that, it, it's that, I never, we never want to be this, this huge brand led place. We want to be the guys who enjoy what they're making, um, have fun making it, making it to the best of our possible ability and sharing it with people. Um, and if that means the fact that we can play with more malts, we can play with more barrels, we can play with different hot profiles and this kind of stuff and still keep playing the bills, well, that makes us all happy. Absolutely. Well, it's been great having the show, Toby. How, how can people find out more about Red Willow and buy some of your beers? Uh, the the, the, the uh, best place to do a brewery website, um, uh, redwillowbrewery.com, um, which bizarrely, I ended up having to write myself when I got a bit of spare time, but it was quite good fun. 
Nice. Um, and and then if anyone's got any questions, just drop me an email um, or get in touch, and I'm more than happy to uh, talk for hours about beer, as you can probably tell. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot Four podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.